Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Erica De Bruyne to discuss her new book, How to Prevent Coup d'etat, Counterbalancing and Regime Survival, published by Cornell University Press in 2020. Rulers structure institutions so as to protect their survival as leaders. Fearing powerful challengers in their own governments, Rulers often create coercive institutions outside the regular military chain of command, hoping to be able to thwart plots that might lead to a military coup. Counterbalancing the military with Republican guards, secret police, and other security forces increases the likelihood that a coup attempt will face resistance and fail. Using an original data set of security forces in 100 countries, Dr. De Bruyne argues that this strategy of counterbalancing military command may help prevent coups, but it has serious risks that may weaken the regime in the long term or affect the likelihood of a civil war. Understanding counterbalancing allows scholars to predict where coup attempts will occur, if they will succeed, and the financial and human costs of stopping them. Dr. Erica De Bruyne is an associate professor of government at Hamilton College and has served as a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at the United States Military Academy at West Point. Her work has been published in the Journal of Peace Research, Journal of Conflict Resolution and Foreign Affairs, and I'm delighted to welcome her to the New Books Network. So Erica, let's start with the title of the book and get two important definitions in place. You write that a coup is an illegal and overt action intended to seize executive authority in a state. Tell us a little bit more. How is this different from an insurgency or a rebellion? And, and does a coup have to have actual violence? Yeah, thanks so much for this question. Yeah, so I think the main distinction between coups and other types of challenges to leaders is that they come from within the state. So it's um, usually members of the political elite, usually members of the government itself, and often members of the military. Military uh, coups are, I think, the most common sort of subtype of of coups that we have. Coup attempts do at least involve the threat of violence. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be carried out, um, but that threat has to be there. And so that's what distinguishes coups from like voluntary resignations um, and transfers of power. And so the military is usually the actor within the state that has um, the best access or their best position to threaten violence. And so that's why we see so so many coup attempts coming from the military. So um, you, and I've seen it other places, use this term like a good coup or a bad coup. Um, and, and I'm wondering, uh, you know, is there such a thing as a good coup? And, and also, could we start with some sort of example of a coup that we can refer back to as we start to talk about counterbalancing? Yeah, so there's been a big debate about whether or not coups can be good in various ways, in the, particularly in the last decade. And usually what we mean when we say a coup is good or bad um, is whether or not it's leading to democratization in any way. And there's this argument out there that I'm sympathetic to in, in many ways that says that um, defection from the military is really the only way that you can get an established dictator out of power. Right. They have incredibly repressive coercive apparatus. It's very difficult to organize mass protests or opposition groups. Um, There's a lot of state repression. And so it might be that the only way you can end a regime like that is if the military turns on the leader. And so um, there's been increasing pressure, I think, particularly post the the post Cold War. So the, uh, you know, starting from the 1990s today till today for um, regimes that take power, militaries that take power in a coup to hold elections. And so we've also seen in the past two decades that the coups that happen today, as opposed to coups that might happen in the 60s or 70s or 80s, they're much more likely to be followed by elections. And so the idea with a good coup is that, you know, five years down the line from the coup, maybe the country is more democratic than it is today. 
Um, I'm very skeptical of this argument, um, in part because I think that once you, that uh, elections are different than democracy, and uh, often the military is very adept at taking advantage of elections and running military candidates. We just saw this um, happen uh, following the 2013 coup in Egypt. Uh, this was a coup attempt that, um, you know, was at the time, a lot of political leaders and even scholars were hesitant to call it a coup. Uh, there was a, a sense that a dictator was being ousted from power. This was part of the Arab, Arab Spring. This was this was a really good, this was going to have a good effect down the line. Um, and then the Egyptian military just ended up basically staying in power, right? They allowed elections to go forward, but then when they did not agree with the policy decisions of, of the elected leader, they ousted that leader again, and then they ran a coup plotter in the next election. Uh, and so I am pretty skeptical of the idea that countries are going to democratize post-coup. Uh, if anything, it gives militaries a sense that this is okay and legitimate, and if they've got, you know, if there's public opposition to the regime, uh, then they're um, positioned or they're 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 legitimated in in sort of weighing in on what they on what they think um, and so I I think the jury's still out in terms of looking at the long run effects you know a decade down the line uh, do we see more democratization and partly just because we've had fewer coups in the post uh, Cold War period uh, but thus far I don't see a lot of evidence that they're a force for democratization okay and and also you seem to be emphasizing rule of law there like as opposed to just the election that something comes with it that follows through for example on an election so that the idea that the procedures aren't just there they're not just window dressings there isn't this kind of patina but that that they're they're sustainable um okay counterbalancing i love when the title by the way thank you very much i love when the title of a book is basically the argument of a book it makes it so easy to sort of think about what is the argument why is it important and counterbalancing is the other word in the title that may not be familiar to um, our listeners so so tell us what counterbalancing is and this might be a good time to you know use an, another example you've used egypt that that helps with counterbalancing the audiences from all over the world, everybody's got in their own head what they think of first when they think of a coup. Great. So counterbalancing, I think, is one of the most common coup proofing or coup prevention strategies that leaders try to adopt. And what it involves is dividing the state's coercive power, their like military force, into multiple competing security forces. Um, and these could be presidential guards, uh, militarized police, Republican guards, interior troops, militias. There's a whole bunch of different forms that counterbalancing can take. But the central idea is that this is some sort of state security force that is independent from the regular military. So it's not within the regular military chain of command. And it has access to the centers of political power that are the targets of coups. So when you try and seize power in a coup, uh, typically what you're doing is trying to capture the president uh, himself or herself or trying to take over parliament or these other kind of, you know, symbolic seats of political power. And so to be a plausible counterweight, a security force can't just exist. It has to have access to these centers of power such that it could do something if a coup attempt were to occur. Many of these counterweights are linked to the regime through um, ethnic ties, religious ties. Some of them are staffed with like party loyalists. So you often see in single party regimes that um, political affiliation is, is an important criteria for party affiliation is important criteria for being a member of the force, but not all of them. Sometimes it's um, they have a similar recruitment to the regular military um, or they're, they're you know, it's just sort of a merit based system, but they just have this kind of independent chain of command. And what that allows is for the regime and the, uh, the leader himself or herself uh, to send orders during a coup attempt to defend the regime, to uh, you know, prevent this coup from happening. Um, one of the most well-known cases that I think people uh, are familiar with is um, uh, the case of counterbalancing under Saddam Hussein in Iraq. So this is before the U.S. invasion in 2003. For several decades, um, Saddam Hussein was attempting to prevent uh, military coups. Uh, he came to power in a coup. He is very familiar with how um, powerful the military is. And he, you know, Iraq is a country that had been engaged in conflicts with its neighbors. And so it's a very powerful military. And so he adopted a whole range of strategies to try and keep the military out of power. But counterbalancing was really uh, central among them. He created a Republican Guard, 
a special Republican Guard and a Fedayeen Saddam. There were a couple other forces at various points, but these were, for the most part, uh, the Republican Guard and special Republican Guard were elite units that he sort of siphoned off from the regular military. They were technically a part of the military structure, but they reported the chain of command went directly to him. Um, and so these were elite units, and he uh, often deployed them around the capital, even when uh, the country was fighting an external conflict, um, to try and uh, make sure that he himself was protected. And the Fedayeen Saddam was more of a militia force that was staffed um, primarily by recruits from his hometown, right? They shared uh, background, uh, background with him. And so that's a really prominent example, but leaders um, across the globe have used this. So in Venezuela, there's a national Bolivian, uh, Bolivarian militia that was created. There's there's um, militarized police forces in a bunch of countries have filled this role. Um, and so it can kind of look different in a bunch of different places. But I, I think the key aspects of it are really this kind of independence from the military and access to the centers of power. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. Um, so you're building on some terrific work, work done by others in political science, actually also in history and sometimes area specialists. But you're really trying to do something different, and we'll talk about your database in a minute, which like really sort of changes this idea of looking at a case study as opposed to comparing cases. But let's start with what the field looked like when you started your research. You know, what have we known? What is your work building on um, so that we can understand how it's really both accepting but also departing from what's been previously understood? Great. Yeah. So. Before I started working on this project, which grew out of my dissertation, so it began in like 2010-ish, so a little while ago, um, there had been a couple of fantastic books that had just come out or, or were in the works about many of the costs of coup proofing. And so I'm thinking here of Caitlin Talmadge's book, uh, The Dictator's Army, Battlefield Effectiveness in Authoritarian Regimes, and Sheena Greiton's work, uh, Dictators and Their Secret Police. What these books and a couple other related ones did was demonstrate how costly coup proofing strategies can be. When you're a leader and you're organizing your military with an eye to preventing them from ousting you from power, that just looks really different than a military that might be optimized for war fighting or something like that. And so these books, I think, did a really excellent job of demonstrating that coup proofing strategies like counterbalancing can undermine military effectiveness, create incentives for repression and things like that. And so kind of given that, state of knowledge um, that, uh, or given this other excellent work that was demonstrating the kind of cost of coup proofing, I thought it was really worth trying to figure out whether these coup proofing strategies actually did what they were supposed to do, which was prevent coups. And there had been a series of uh, studies that looked at individual cases of counterbalancing. Um, and these studies often found or attributed like long running coup prevention successes to counterbalancing. Uh, they attributed the power of particularly a number of countries in the Middle East to, to, to remain in power and not have successful coups and several countries in Africa as well to the use of counterweights. But one kind of limitation of that work was, which was really rich and gave us, I think a really detailed knowledge of how, how counterbalancing works was that um, it was just focused on successful cases, right? And so we didn't have a broader sense of um, what leaders were doing who failed to uh, pre prevent coups against them. And there were these high profile cases that I could think about where counterbalancing failed, where leaders tried to create a counterweight and it didn't work. And so that's what suggested to me that there would be some space for actually trying to like collect data systematically across a bunch of countries to see if there's this, there are really patterns there to see whether or not on average, having a counterweight results in or is associated with fewer coup attempts or whether it's associated with less successful coup outcomes. And so I thought there was some space to be able to try and actually figure out, does this work in the way that leaders intended? Okay, so this database is extensive. And one of the points that you make throughout the book, and it's really interesting, is geography, like that that we tend to sort of focus on particular areas depending where we're from and, and, and our sort of political um, under uh, lenses. Uh, so how did you go about creating this? Uh, how did you choose the countries? What What is it then? I mean, I think you've already established why this makes this different because you're not looking at one particular case and you're also looking at both the successful and the failed attempts. But where did you get the data for the database? How did you go about this? How hard was it? 
Uh, it was hard. <laughs> it took a long time. So I collected the data in two waves. Um, the first part of it I did during my dissertation, uh, and I collected data on, at that point, 65 countries. Um, and then in subsequent to that, um, I had a second wave of data collection where I brought this up to 110 countries uh, in total. And what I did was I look at the kind of universe of potential cases, which is like every potential country in the world, right? Um, and I, I quickly realized I wasn't going to be able to collect data on every country, that this was just going to be too time intensive. But I wanted to do kind of move us from a small end case study design to uh, at least something that I could try and uh, do some statistical analysis with. And so I ended up um, randomly selecting uh, these 110 countries, as I said, in these kind of two waves, so starting with the first 65 and then up to 110, and um, making sure that there was some sort of geographic variation. I had a population threshold, so I didn't collect data on countries smaller than 5 million. Um, at some point, it was a lower threshold, but I raised it <laughs> partly due to data availability. And then what I did was compile as much information as I could about uh, how leaders were organizing and using their security forces. So I drew upon government documents where I could find them uh, in translation, because I don't speak every language there is, um, memoirs of coup participants, media reporting. There's NGOs that have, you know, uh, do a great job of sort of reporting on the security sectors of many states. A lot of work has been focused on security sector reform. Um, so there's a couple of good places that do that. And then a lot of academic work. And so there's um, civil military relations was, you know, I think the like heyday of the field <laughs> uh, was during the Cold War. And so going back and trying to find information about, um, okay, which leaders have a presidential guard, which leaders have a militarized police force in the 1960s, 1970s, that was really dependent upon the great scholarship that other people had been doing um, that was really trying to track uh, civil military relations um, in a ton of places across the globe. And so uh, for every country, I have a kind of distinct list of sources that I was that I was drawing from. And I think it, it totaled like 2,200 different, uh, different sources uh, altogether. So you mentioned the 1950s. Uh, is this historically bounded in any way? How far back did you go? Did you did you make some determination to talk about modern? And is and how did you do that? Since it's yeah. So I, the data thus far is from 1960 to 2010. I have ambitions to bring it up to, <laughs> to uh, the present day at some point, uh, although I haven't, uh, haven't been able to do that yet. Um, but yeah, so it's a 50-year period. And one thing that I've thought a lot about since publishing this book is whether or not um, the coups today are different, right? So what we've had since 2010 is, in particular, a big change is social media. And so one thing that we know about coups from uh, the great work of uh, the scholar Nanahal Singh, who's written this, I think, the kind of canonical book about how coups unfold now, uh, which is called A Seizing Power. Um, his book suggests that coups are, um, they're about the manipulation of information internally to the military. And so what happens when a coup attempt uh, begins, he argues, is that soldiers don't know how it's going to turn out. And it's really important for them to be kind of be on the right side of the coup attempt. Uh, and so who, whoever can monopolize information during the coup um, usually has a, has a, has the best chance of winning. And so during much of the period that I'm focused on from 1960 to 2010, the way that you monopolize information is through uh, seizing power of a radio station or television station or the internal communications within the military. So you are basically trying to make it look, if you're the coup plotter, make it look like the coup's already over, right? You've already done this. Um, and so the big question is like, well, with the rise of social media and leaders who can make, you know, public appeals on Facebook or they're on, you know, they're recording videos on Twitter, um, where a bunch of uh, ordinary people can be tracking the movements of troops and sort of uploading it, does that change the dynamics of coups? And does that mean that counterbalancing is maybe no longer as important? And I think, um, my, so this is an initial thought since I haven't, uh, I don't have the data to, to, to test it yet, but it strikes me that um, if anything, this change will likely have made counterbalancing more important in that there's so much information that we now have about coups as they're unfolding. Um, a lot of it is might be misinformation. There's confusion. It's actually hard to sort out what's going on. And so the kind of clear signal that a leader can send with their counterweight and deploying a counterweight to a coup uh, might 
if anything, have more of an effect. But I think that's something we'll have to wait to have a definitive answer to uh, sort of when that when that data is collected. For now, I think it's a good snapshot of kind of what uh, what the dynamics of coups have been, at least during this period from 1960 to 2010. I would even think reading some of the cases that you talk about that even just the existence of cell phones and the ability of individuals to communicate with each other to say, I, I didn't say that, or he's not here, or any any sort of small pieces of, of, of actually just fact that would would make it make you less dependent on hearing on the radio whether something has happened or not would have some sort of an impact. It's it's a fascinating idea of you know what what does it what does it mean as these events unroll. I currently have students who are you know they're obviously paying attention to what's happening with the Russian invasion in Ukraine, but they're also currently reading about the disappeared in Argentina and and they're recognizing that the kind of information that people have is filtered in such different ways. And in your book, that really seems uh, front and center. That as this over this fifty-year period, there's there's a real change, and you know you can't you can't cut phone lines as easily. Um, uh, I know you're talking about uh, balancing the database so that you have uh, representation from all across the world. Um, do you find coups present in the same uh, rates or at same level of importance for thinking about political regimes and how they survived? Or are they more focused in particular region, regions? Do they affect particular kinds of governments more than others? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. So. Um, it sort of changed over time. Uh, it used to be that the most coup-prone region of the globe was in Latin America, um, and you had this sort of heyday of military regimes really uh, being concentrated in, in Latin America during the Cold War. Uh, since that time, um, you know, we've had a decline in coups across much of the globe. Where we still tend to see a lot of coup attempts is particularly in West and Central Africa and also some in Asia. And so there's been kind of different patterns in, in uh, regional patterns in, in coups over time. Um, one thing that we do know about coups is that they are much more common in some types of regimes than others. Uh, no matter where they're located, right? So military regimes are particularly coup prone. Uh, you might think this is, I don't know, I think puzzling to me when I first learned about it, um, partly because you think that military leaders, um, you know, if they're really, really, if they're ruling as an institution, they have the backing of the military or they're very attuned to military, you know, um, tactics. So they might be able to recognize and stop a coup very quickly. Um, but there's actually often a lot of strains that are put on military militaries when they rule, right? This is actually a very precarious position for them. They tend to face a lot more opposition. Militaries across the globe are very popular. uh, And then when they get in power, they become less popular. Uh, So military regimes face a ton of coup attempts. And so part of the kind of decline in coups over time, I think, is partly attributable to there being less uh, military regimes, which kind of create these cycles of coups. Um, and democratizing states uh, are often um, very, very vulnerable to coup attempts. So that's something that's kind of cut against the kind of broader trend uh, down post-Cold War because we've also had the kind of, you know, a, a rise of or spread of, of democracy during much of this period. But where we're seeing coup attempts, I think, concentrated today is largely in places where um, either kind of, you know, Long-standing authoritarian regimes where the military just never got out of politics in, in various ways, um, and then in countries where they've been trying to make more democratic reforms, which often include reforms to the military. Um, militaries are often exclusive organizations where, you know, if you have a minority-run regime in power, then they also want to staff the military in this way. Um, and so, democratization often means. Uh, changes to recruitment and the kind of demographic balance of the military. And it typically means reducing the military budget, right? Because there's other priorities in a democracy um, and uh, in terms of spending, and they want to, you know, ideally there's less repression that's happening. So you, so you need to kind of funnel less money to the repressive, the course of sort of apparatus. And so that I think is, uh, you know, can put a lot of strain on uh, military and create grievances that prompt a lot of coups. And so um, in addition to military regimes, uh, uh, democratizing states are also really, uh, really at risk. So you mentioned your dissertation, and it kind of makes me wonder 
Why did you start writing on coups in the first place? When did this idea come to you? Was was there some case study that you were looking at and you couldn't figure it out? Like what where did this come from? You have an incredible acknowledgement section. It's a very wide group of people. It's my favorite part of the book. People listening to the show regularly know this. Sort of seeing the the depth and breadth of people who contribute to a book or to an education. But where where did this interest in coups come from? Yeah, so <laughs> I can pinpoint it. Uh, so in my second year of graduate school, um, I was in a comparative politics class um, where we read the economic origins of democracy and dictatorship. This is uh, Asimo Blue and Robinson's book. And it was this small thing in their book where they assume that elites can derail democratization whenever they want with a coup. And this assumes, right, that the military is going to go along with what the uh, what, what elites want in uh, any circumstance. Of course, this is an abstraction. I, I did not mean this literally, uh, but this nagged at me so much. Uh, this idea of when when is it the military is just going to go along with what elites want? When are they going to support a repressive regime? And when is it that they feel um, that they can advance their own interests best by breaking with the current political regime? Uh, so I started thinking about this a lot at that time, and then uh, the Arab Spring happened. And and this was a real moment where all of a sudden we saw, I think, it was brought to, brought to the, the forefront of people's minds how important the military is in determining the kind of outcomes of these protests. And there was a lot of concern and anticipation about what the military is going to do. Is the military going to break with the regime? Um, and then you see countries set on kind of different trajectories depending on what the military did. And so that's what sort of initially sparked my interest in this. And I was just really interested in trying to understand whether the kind of long-running decline of coups that we had been seeing was because of strategies like this. Is it that dictators are just getting savvier, right? Are they, are they getting better at coup proofing? And I think that like my answer is not really, <laughs> but at the time I was just not, I was kind of puzzled by this decline in coups and trying to understand what was it that was driving it. And so it was a, it was a combination, I would say, of like, you know, finding something in somebody else's work that I was like, that's not right. <laughs> um, and kind of the, you know, sort of broader historic event, like the, the kind of you know, global context of what was happening at the time, which was really putting the military at the front of my mind. Um, and just this feeling that this was a puzzle and that we didn't really understand why uh, why coups had, had declined. And so I thought I might be able to speak to, to speak to that a little bit. That's a great story, Erica. That really is. No, no, no. Because this idea that like you're, you're seriously, uh, uh, thinking through the, uh, the, 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 the assumptions of, you know, a big book, and yet it's there's just a part of it, not the whole thing, but part of it that's just not sitting right seems like perhaps it's it's a misassumption or it's not a partial assumption and that you're surrounded by this other world event. It's a beautiful story, really. Like, that's a great origin story for a book. Um, OK, so counterbalancing, uh, you know, throughout the book is is obviously um central. And you're talking about all of these different political actors who, in the midst of a coup, are weighing the choice to resist, you know, or to support the coup. You know, what do we know about these actors and how they make these decisions? What are the factors that they're weighing and how do they work through that that decision chain? Yeah, that's a good question. And so it's really hard to know what um, soldiers are thinking in the midst of a coup attempt. Um, what we do have is some really great interview work that's been done, not by me, but by others, uh, that has, has, I think, shed some light on the calculations that have been made. I mentioned Nanahal Singh's book a little bit earlier. He did this amazing multi-year study in Ghana where he was like hanging out in officers' clubs with uh, military officers and sort of talking, uh, talking to them about uh, military coups. I've also done a little bit of uh, interviews with military officers, um, but I'm largely building on uh, Nanahal Singh's work and, and others here. And what, um, what that work suggests is that it's really important to uh, military officers to all act in tandem with one another to try and whether they're going to support this coup or they're going to oppose the, the coup to try and do it together. Because 
the military as an institution is, um, you know, even in places where the military is fragmented in various ways or there's sort of internal tensions, it's really dangerous when you've got the military split to the, when, when the military splits in response to a political event, right? Because then you have uh, soldiers firing on other people that they have lived and worked and trained with. Um, you can get incredibly violent incredibly quickly. This is how um, this is one way in which civil wars start actually is through these kind of splits in the military, and so. No matter their political commitments, um, it seems that most officers want to be on the kind of winning side of the coup attempt. If a coup attempt fails, there's often um, really harsh consequences for participants in it. Uh, they can be, are often jailed. Uh, they are often, if not jailed and sometimes executed, they are they lose their jobs. And the military as an institution, um, this is usually a time in which, like a bunch of, so if, the, if a coup fails, this is usually a time in which leaders will take advantage of this this failed coup to clean house within the military, to purge people that they don't think are going to be loyal, to slash the military budgets, to you know push through policy changes internally in the military that they don't want. And so there can be a lot of sort of negative repercussions for getting it wrong. And so that, you know, I don't think all, there are many military officers that have strong political commitments and do really feel one strongly one way or another, like this leader should be in power, we should oust this leader. Um, but, the, you know, I think like ordinary people, right, not everybody has really strong political commitments. And often in these cases, it's the best outcome is to just be on the side that end up winning. Um, and so one, the way, part of the way in which counterbalancing uh, is working is that it's changing the calculation for military officers. So officers that are in counterbalancing forces, um, they're often, they have a different sort of set of incentives typically. They might have their own like institutional interests that develop over time. They might come to see themselves as like distinct from the regular military. So this isn't always the case, but sometimes uh, these institutions build up their own kind of identity, right? Like they think of themselves in opposition to, to, to the military. They compete with the military for recruits or for you know, for funds. Um, and they often get different information coming from the regime. And so their calculation of like, how is this coup going to go might be different. And so the idea with counterbalancing um, is to try and just nudge the incentives or like, you know, push, push the calculation for military officers such that more of them are willing to not just like sit on the sidelines, but actively resist the, the coup attempt. And particularly trying to set up multiple institutions as rivals to one another can create a situation where other security forces feel like they can veto a coup attempt or they have this ability to kind of check the military. And that's incredibly, it's like a powerful feeling, right? That's a powerful ability. Um, there's all these stories of after coup attempts, uh, the kind of negative things that happen to counterbalancing forces, oftentimes they get entirely disbanded. So if a leader is ousted and it's a like, you know, a militia that was loyal to him or something or a presidential guard that he was uh, showering with perks and things, um, they can just be entirely disbanded. Other times they're brought under military control. And so you saw this, um, this happened a ton in coup attempts in Latin America um, in the 1970s and 80s, where you had these big, powerful counterbalancing institutions, these gendarmerie forces that had, you know, histories in some cases that were longer than the regular military, right? These, these had, they have an institutional identity. They very much didn't want the military necessarily to, to run things, or maybe they would partner with the military. But when they would do that, they would then get, uh, they would be moved under the Ministry of Defense, right? Like the Ministry of Interior would like cease to exist or would be like moved in this way, such that they were then clearly subordinate to the regular military. And so, even if they don't have strong political feelings about who's going to be in power, a um, coup that comes from the military typically doesn't mean good things for other forces. And so um, that changes the calculus, I think, of, of, of people in those forces. So you mentioned Civil War, and one of the later chapters in the book you know, speaks very, very specifically about how coups turn into civil wars. So maybe flesh that out just a little bit. Give us a little bit of an example and just sort of show us that pathway between this these differences in the military groups and how that could manifest as a as a, a full-blown civil war. Yeah, so one thing that I find in the book is that coups that occur in uh, in countries that have counterweights, so they've got multiple security forces, are more likely to escalate to civil war than coups elsewhere. And how that happens is one of two ways. 
So first, it can be just that the um, counterbalancing force itself resists the coup uh, kind of in the days, sometimes hours and then days and weeks in which the coup is happening. And that res initial resistance is violent enough um, and spreads quickly enough to involve non-state actors like civilians, members of political parties, um, uh, that, or sometimes armed groups that are outside the state, um, that that just quickly reaches a sort of threshold that scholars tend to think about as constituting civil war. And so whether that's, you know, 25 deaths is, uh, happens pretty quickly, sometimes these, these escalate to over a thousand deaths. Um, I look in particular at, in the book, at this coup attempt that happened in the Dominican Republic in 1965 where um, there was a militarized riot squad that had been built up uh, within the police. Um, this is partly through U.S. training, actually, uh, which is interesting. Um, and when this initial coup attempt happens in 1965, like no, almost nobody is happy with the regime that's in, that's in power. Um, but the coup plotters can't really, they weren't really agreed upon what was going to happen next. And so there's kind of this jubilant scene that's happening in the kind of immediate aftermath of this coup, where there's just people like partying in the presidential palace. Um, and, uh, but there's not any sort of agreement about what's happening. And nobody within the military in the first couple hours of this coup is really seems to be doing anything to mobilize against it. Um, the resistance that you start to see is from this uh, militarized riot police squad. They launch a sort of first attack. Um, they get beaten back by the military, uh, and it ends up dragging the coup attempt out such that other factions of the military end up deciding to weigh in. Civilians who are members of a political party end up um, trying to arm their members. And so then you have ordinary citizens like filling up, you know, making Molotov cocktails and like, you know, liberating weapons from weapons storage. And all of a sudden it becomes incredibly violent. But I think without that sort of res initial resistance that made the outcome of the coup really uncertain, you wouldn't have had that kind of uh, spiraling out. So that's one sort of mechanism or way in which um, counterbalancing can make coup attempts escalate to civil war. The other is illustrated by this case I look at in Yemen in 1962, where there wasn't initial resistance from a counterweight, actually. So this is a coup attempt that happened. Um, and uh, this was right after a new imam had taken power in 1962. He'd been in power for about a week. And there had been a coup planned against his father. Uh, but then his father dies unexpectedly. Uh, so this all happens very quickly. Uh, they decide to go forward with the coup. And there is a presidential guard that offered, they do offer a little bit of resistance, but the coup plotters are successful in gaining control of the presidential palace and, and other ta uh, other um, targets that they had in the capital. So the imam flees um, to outside of the capital, and he ends up rallying these tribal militias that had been built up as counterweights. And so when the coup was happening, most of them were on the outskirts of the capital. And so they weren't actually able to help defend the presidential palace. They were just like physically a little bit farther away. Um, and they all sort of the left when the, the uh, imam left. Uh, but in the next weeks and months that followed, the imam was able to rally these tribal militias. And so rather than having to go through the process of like organizing a rebel group, which is like incredibly hard, right? Like if you're, if we think about what we know about organizing rebel groups, like you're training in secret, you have to convince people, you have to teach people how to use weapons. You have to, you know, like um, you make them willing to actually use violence. Um, in the context of a state that's counterbalanced, these counterweights in some cases can serve as a kind of ready-made source of like a rebel group, right? And so the imam was able to use these tribal forces as the backbone of his insurgency. And he then tried to come back and retake the country. This ended up being a several year long uh, civil war that escalated from it. So that's like, a, that's a totally different way <laughs> which you can get from a coup to a civil war. Um, uh, and I think that that's a little bit rarer than, than the cases in which uh, you have just escalating violence within the in the coup spiraling out, but they represent, I think, two different ways that having this kind of fragmented security sector can result in or facilitate additional political violence and kind of make conflicts that were between just like military and civilian elites escalate out into these kind of broader, uh, broader things that, that looked much more like civil wars or that that end up turning into multi-year civil wars. So that's so helpful. And I just want to say to the people who haven't read the book, but should be buying the book, that one of the sort of benefits of the book is this kind of clarity. So, um, and, and that's what you can expect from reading this. I, I'm not a specialist in this sub 
a field of political science, nor coups. But I now feel a bit like I am because of the way that you break things down and this and this kind of clarity of like there's two types. Here's uh, examples of each, and it's really it's really a wonderfully accessible book. I mean, it's very detailed, it's very rich, but I also want to say like you explain things really well, and that's that's helpful for any reader because none of us are just reading one thing at the same time. You mentioned the United States. You mentioned the United States training people. So, I, and and if, if we think earlier to what you said about a quote unquote good coup and whether or not after a coup you get either elections or something more than elections in terms of lasting institutions that are grounded in rule of law, it, do we see any patterns in terms of whether uh, liberal democratic countries have had a part in the coup, have uh, trained some part of the um, either the military or one of the counterbalancing groups? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And so, you know, at this point, the United States in particular has helped train so many militaries across the globe that <laughs> it's pretty common that the participants in coup attempts have had some U.S. training or training by, you know, there's other other um, countries that do this as well. France does a ton of uh, a ton of training. Uh, and so on the one hand, yes, like there is some sense that, um, you know, if you participate in training exercises, on the one hand, these, at least U.S. training is supposed to incul- inculcate these like norms of democratic civilian control of the military. But at the same time, you're giving individual members that are of the, these militaries that are participating some uh, sort of capital, right, like some, some technical know-how, some prestige that is affiliated with this, some money often. Um, and so you might be empowering uh, uh, potential coup plotters in the future. I don't know that this is just because it's so ubiquitous at this point for the places that we are seeing coups um, for coup plotters to <laughs> just that it's so ubiquitous that, that there has been some sort of training, particularly there's been a huge expansion in training uh, during the, the war on terror, um, such that I don't know that it can explain the kind of variation we're seeing, right, in between which countries are still having coups and, and which countries are not. The United States is training, uh, is training a ton of people. Um, one thing that was really interesting to me in looking at the establishment of counterweights over time was how much the U.S. was investing in actually building up counterweights. Uh, this is not like some foreign policy goal of the United States. They don't talk, you know, I don't see policy documents that are talking about uh, that the United States, our goal is to build up a counterweight. They don't, they don't use that kind of terminology. But what you do see, particularly during the Cold War um, and then kind of a resurgence post 9-11, is this real uh, investment in training police forces. And police forces are one of the most common types of counterweights. There are almost all countries in the world today have uh, militarized police forces, whether they organize them independently from the military or not, whether they have access to the capital or not. um, There's some variation there. So not all of them are counterweights um, or have the potential to serve in that role, but many of them do. And in some cases, you know, looking back, I have been looking for, I have a new project going on um, uh, that's on militarized policing and the kind of spread of that uh, right now. And so I've been diving a little bit more into the archives on U.S. police training abroad during the Cold War. And one thing that you see, I do see when I start to look at that, is that police trainers were, um, and State Department officials involved in this, like were very aware that building up a police force could serve as a counterweight to the regular military. And so they often at the time would say, this will help check the power of the military. This will help, uh, you know, basically... Uh, prevent a coup from prevent a coup from happening. And their estimates, I think they were a little bit too rosy in their estimates. Um, the idea with some of this was that not just that these counterweights could stop a coup in progress, but that it, it could deter coup attempts. And one thing I should emphasize with my with the book finding is findings is that I don't looking at these kind of patterns across cases, um, I find that coups are less successful where you have counterweights, coup attempts are less likely to succeed, but I don't find that counterbalancing deters coup plotters in the first place, that they still stage these coup attempts. And so you see these examples of US policymakers just being oftentimes surprised that this didn't work in this way. And you I just see all this evidence of how angry it can make the military, right? So this comes back to, you know, one thing you said, uh, you emphasized in the beginning in this, in the introduction to the book was that this is a risky strategy of of coup prevention. And I really hope that that is a a takeaway that people have from this book is that I understand why leaders do it. It does 
decrease the likelihood a coup will succeed. Um, but there are so many risks in trying to establish counterweights and uh, that uh, in terms of who's escalated to civil war, um, and just that you're going to anger the military, uh, that this isn't really, this isn't in the end a strategy that I think U.S. policymakers should be pushing on other countries. And you're very clear, by the way, in the book that that though you are looking at these strategies, you are also at the same time criticizing their motives and the fact that it can weaken the state over a long time. That that could not be clearer. Um, I'm glad to hear that. You know, you you mentioned time, and we all know that books have to be submitted and they have to go into uh, to publishers who then have to produce them. So this book has been handed in and out for a little bit. So as as you look at the gears in between, um, is there anything that sort of catches your eye that either really helps support some of the ideas in the book, or um, uh, or or even in today's like right now contemporary moment, are there coups that people should be watching for because in fact they're not aware of Central African coups or other uh, places they're not looking. They just haven't ha haven't been thinking about it. So so both like, how do you feel about the book over the three years that probably have gone by? And also like, what should we be watching right now through the lens that this book powerfully gives us? Yeah, so this book came out in November, 2020, uh, right at the beginning of former President Trump's efforts to remain in power. And I had, I think I had did not anticipate in any way that this book was going to be coming out in a moment when people would be wondering about if there's a coup attempt unfolding in the United States. This just seemed outside of the realm of possibility to me when I was working on this book. And I think, I hope the book is pretty clear about its scope conditions. I'm focusing on countries that have less well-institutionalized norms against coups than the United States have. has, right? The, I do think that the U.S. military is very professional. Um, military officers in the United States have internalized the idea that they don't, they shouldn't be choosing who is the president. Um, but the extent to which the former president was trying to recruit military to do this, was floating plans about how the military might uh, help them stay in power, was really uh, was really surprising. Um, the book is also, in addition to sort of not being about the United States, the book is about. I should clarify, the book is about more traditional military coups rather than self coups or you know, efforts by leaders to stay in power. But what I think Donald Trump's efforts to remain in power really illustrated to me was some of the limitations of the boundaries that scholars of American politics and comparative politics uh, have drawn between their between their work. So scholars of civil military relations generally are either they study the United States or they study the rest of the world. And we don't interact as much as we should. At the same time, scholars of coups don't haven't uh, had a lot of overlap or, or interaction in their work with scholars of democratic backsliding. And so I think that what um, the last year or so have suggested to me is that we really need to be doing more to sort of bridge insights from our thus far quite siloed research agendas. And so that's part of what I've been focusing on sort of going forward is trying to think about, you know, does counterbalancing and other coup proofing strategies, do they impede other types of anti-democratic actions? Um, in some cases, watching what went down in the United States on January 6th suggested to me that while counterbalancing might help leaders prevent traditional coups, it also makes can make it harder for them to stay in power via a self-coup, because then all of a sudden you have multiple forces you're trying to coordinate. Um, and so and anyways, I think that's an interesting uh, future future direction for, for researchers to really be thinking a little bit more about putting this work in dialogue with all the work, the great work that's been happening on democratic backsliding. The other thing that's happened, obviously, in the last like you know, a year or so has been an upswing again in the number of coup attempts that we've seen and more traditional coup attempts. And so I counted as of, I think, um, Friday. So nothing's happened since Friday, uh, which is uh, that there had been 11 coup attempts um, in, in Africa since uh, 2019. Uh, there's also obviously been one uh, in Burma, Myanmar uh, as well. Um, and so this is you know, a, a kind of big uptick. This is not what we had anticipated. We haven't had as many coup attempts in Africa in particular since uh, early in the 1990s. 
Um, and what I, this suggests to me in part is that like leaders don't have this worked out, right? Like it's not, we're not into a situation where everyone knows how to coup proof and we're just gonna, uh, they're good. They're going to be good at, uh, they're going to be good at doing it forever. Um, but there's still uh, ways in which they're making mistakes, ways in which the investment in counterbalancing forces is really uh, causing tensions within the military and militaries are under a lot of pressure in a lot of the countries that have seen coups in Chad and Mali and, and Burkina Faso and in terms of the other insurgencies that they are, like domestic insurgencies that they're fighting. And so this just creates conditions, I think, in which coups are going to continue to happen. Um, and so I guess I think, you know, while I started this book from a perspective of let me let me understand why we don't have coups anymore, um, I have come around to, you know, the, the events of the past year or so have suggested, I think, that they're maybe not as uh, defunct as, as, as we might have thought and that leaders are going to continue to try and wrestle with this issue of like, how do I self protect myself from a coup while also not completely undermining military effectiveness and things like that. Uh, you've got two shelves of books behind you and they're all library books, uh, which means you have a new project and uh, you've, you've mentioned it just briefly. So uh, tell us a little bit more about what you're writing next and, and what we'll have look, be able to look forward to reading. Thanks. Yeah. So the uh, new project that I'm focused on right now, um, that's most directly related to this one, is about the spread of militarized policing. And so to me, that was one of the most interesting aspects of counterbalancing is that militarized police forces, they're less likely to be opposed by the regular military. Like the regular, like if you're going to be trying, if you're a leader trying to create your own counterweight, um, if you create a militarized police force, then there's some plausible other purpose at serving, right? And so you can say, okay, well, we don't want the military to be engaged in, you know, this unpopular domestic repression. That's what the police are going to do. And in some cases, the military is on board with this. They actually encourage police militarization. And in other cases, they really violently resist it. Um, and so I'm partly interested in understanding relationships between military and police forces. I'm also interested in understanding why, just how and why and when militarized policing spread. Um, in the 1960s, it was incredibly rare. And today, almost every country has pretty highly, uh, heavily militarized police forces. And so part of what I've been doing is tracking the spread of militarized police that I have for every country in the globe. I've, I was able for that. This is more limited to go beyond the 100, 110 countries I had for, for this book um, and been tracking the sort of patterns in it. And as the U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland are reopening, I've been able to do a little bit of archival work there on. Yeah, I've been so excited about that um, on uh, U.S. police assistance programs and sort of what what they were thinking and trying to encourage police militarization and what resistance there was and, and things like that. So that's kind of a, that's a project in its like really initial phases right now. But um, I think it's one that's super interesting. And I feel like, I don't know, grew, grew pretty clearly out of this, <laughs> out of this book project. Well, I hope when you're done with that, we'll have you back on new books in political science to discuss it because it actually sounds, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like it's wide reaching. And I couldn't agree with you more that the silos between comparative politics, IR, and American politics were really shown as unproductive as people tried to understand what was happening in the United States. And that confusion applies when we're trying to look at other examples as well. We need, we need, a, lot of, we need a lot of conversation among political scientists. Hopefully this program helps support that. Um, Erica DeBrun, I'm so happy. Thank you so much for sharing the book. Uh, the book is How to Prevent Coup d'etat, Counterbalancing and Regime Survival. It's from Cornell University Press 2020, and we have a, a link for you to buy it on the show page. Uh, Erica, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk today. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure.